Okay. Good evening, everybody. My name is Iris Barawi. I'm one of the directors, um, together with my colleague and friend, Tony McGrew, um, of the Center for the History of Global Development at Shanghai University. And I'm um, very pleased, very happy to uh, welcome you all to this night's talk. And uh, we have, uh, uh, you know, we have many very illustrious names, but this is a particularly illustrious name today uh, with Professor Glenda Sluga. And um, she not only has um, her own Wikipedia entry, which not many people have who speak here, and also, as um, I think I will demonstrate as I continue this introduction, she's certainly one with the most interesting sounding positions. Um, I, I was very impressed with that. To go very briefly um, through some of the states of her um, career, she um, is, um, her parents come from Slovenia, and I just found out she actually speaks Slovenian. I found that very impressive, um, but grew up in Australia, in Melbourne, and did part of her studies there, but then got her PhD at the University of Sussex. She has since really been around, so I will do the short tour of that, otherwise we don't have time for that. She has worked in various positions at the University of Melbourne, at the University of Sydney, at places I cannot pronounce, Slovak University in Budapest, um, at a, a university in Debrecen, at a, the, the Fondation des Sciences de l'Homme, which is a very prestigious place in Paris, at the universities of Cambridge, of Bologna, in Vienna, at Monash University, again in Australia, at the, the Institut des Etudes Politiques, again in Paris. So you get the picture. She is a person of the world. Um, and she was in, in 2010 became head of the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry, um, which was abbreviated SOFI. So somebody really came up with a nice name there. She uh, received a number of awards, among them in 2014, the prestigious award of the Australian Research Council Catherine Gerald Laureate, the fellowship. And she is now a professor at the European University Institute at the University uh, um, in Florence at the Institute. And is there a director of a research project uh, called um, 20th Century International Economic Thinking and the Complex History of Globalization, where she focuses particularly on the role of women, so women of female economists and NGOs. And you're if I'm not mistaken, uh, the position that you have is called Professor of International History and Capitalism. I find that an interesting um, an, an interesting combination. So maybe we can touch on that in the Q&A. Otherwise, um, there's only for me to mention a few publications of a very, very impressive list. Um, just one I would like to mention is um, Internationalism, a 20th century history, which came out in 2017. Um, at, uh, by the, uh, in, uh, with Cambridge University Press, who was co-written with uh, Patricia Clavin. Um, Capitalists and Climate, uh, in, also in 2017, published in Humanity, and uh, came out in 2019, uh, a, uh, an article, Remembering 1919, published in International Affairs, so very topical. 
Um, as you have guessed, without doubt, uh, the research areas are international history, history of international organizations, economic history, and history of capitalism. And this is what we'll hear tonight. So I'm very, very much looking forward to this. Glenda, the floor is all yours. Thank you. Thank you very much, Iris. I mean, I might ask, I think it's Yun uh, who has uh, his uh, microphone on. Oh, you? Than so they might turn off their microphone and mute themselves. Thank you so much. Okay. And then I don't have to talk over the top of it. So it's such a pleasure, such a pleasure to be in Shanghai. I wish I was uh, with you all. And I know not many of you are actually in Shanghai. Um, so we can all pretend. Um, it would be lovely to be there together uh, in this seminar. And I'm very grateful to uh, Professor Borrowie for inviting me. And your center for the history of global development sounds a really interesting uh, place and, and, and a wonderful program that um, Professor Borrowie has been able to bring together. So I'm going to uh, talk uh, tonight, with night time here, about some new work I've started on 20th century international economic thinking, uh, surveying and studying economic ideas and actors in the long history of global governance. So I think it's fitting for your center and the kinds of programs that I think you, you work on. And it also intersects in some ways with um, the work of Professor Borowick. So I'd be very interested in, uh, in her comments. Now, what I want to do now is share a screen with you, uh, the PowerPoint. And let's see if I can make this. Um, sorry, I'm just going to try and. There we are. Okay, so uh, hopefully my PowerPoints are never fantastic, but just to help us along a little bit. So my aim in the next half hour or so is to introduce you to a moment in the history of global governance in which we find economic ideas and actors playing critical roles in the 1972 UN Human Environment Conference. <coughs> uh, it was known as the first effort to cope with environmental problems on a comprehensive and global basis. So I don't know if any of you have heard of it before, but it is the first time that there's a global conference on question, environmental questions and it's 1972. So quite a long time for many of you, um, but I was actually alive then, although I don't have any memory of it. So um, the interesting thing about uh, this conference is it's run by the UN, but actually brings together in its organization all sorts of different state and non-state actors that we might not expect to see organizing this. And, um, and so pulling it apart a bit and seeing who's there and what they're thinking and doing is what I'm really interested in um, uh, working out. The immediate organizational origins of the conference can be traced to 1969. So 1969, it's the Cold War, um, man on the moon, you know, it's the 60s, after the great sort of radical movements of 68 in Paris. Uh, that year, the UN Secretary General, who was uh, from uh, Thailand, actually, Utant, uh, sorry, from Burma, Utant, and he was the first uh, third world secretary general. Utant called for a planetary imagination 
that could match the realities of the present day world, he said. And the General Assembly decided that a conference should take place on the human environment, it was known as, and that it should focus on the economically precarious position of developing countries. So the first global governance conference on the environment is on the human environment, and it's uh, meant to focus on the economically precarious position of developing countries. It's eventually held in Stockholm in 1972 and brings together around 113 governments and 700 NGO accredited observers, as well as a broader public. It includes an official forum that for the first time in that uh, UN setting gives voice to non-governmental organizations as a really a substantial part of the conference. So that things are being said in the non-governmental spaces of Stockholm, they organize in different buildings, but it gets relayed back and forth to the main conference. So in the longer version of this lecture, I might have spent more time outlining uh, the ideas and networks of state and non-state actors that encourage the emphasis on human environment. So this is a very, you know, um, historically specific idea at the time. And one of the contexts for it is in fact, a society that gets set up in Athens in 1963 by architects. And um, it's called the World Echistic Society. It's very popular at the time. <laughs> and it draws in uh, all kinds of people from economists to physicists, uh, to politicians, and they're all quite linked through this organization. It's set up as a world society espousing a new view of urban life, of cities as living organisms shaped in interplay with man uh, and using planning and architecture to better mold human settlements. It's a reaction to a perceived lack of engagement at the UN with ecological and environmental issues. And it connects many of the figures who would fund, plan, and then run the Stockholm conference. So even though you might think, well, if it's run by the UN, it's run by the bureaucracy, but it's actually not how it happens, right? It draws in physicists, architects, urban planners, economists, philosophers, and oil men, uh, individuals running huge oil companies, as well as anthropologists and other uh, self-identified businessmen. So it's quite a strange, eclectic group of people who belong and connected to the World Echistic Society, but also who become part of the story of the Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment. Now, among them are also two women. Um, they're not women there, but uh, let's see if I can go backwards. Sorry, uh, let me go back. Um, but in the, here you can see Margaret Mead and Barbara Ward. Um, uh, Barbara we, Ward's Glenda, we, cannot, yeah. I don't, we cannot see them. I don't know if you have, if you're doing no, something. Well, at the moment, I don't have any images. This is just- oh, okay, okay. Well, then, okay. Yeah. Sorry, so sorry, I'll show you pictures later on. I'm just going to kind of mention some of these people. But so Barbara Ward is an economist. Margaret Mead is an anthropologist. She's very famous, of course, but by this time she's quite old, but she becomes the leading figure of the non-governmental movement at Stockholm and in the organizational part around it. And in the businessman category, we find um, uh, people like the uh, 
man given the job of organizing the conference, who is in fact an oil man, uh, Maurice Strong, who ra ran um, Petro Canada, and Robert O. Anderson, who uh, was the first man to drill in Alaska and ran Atlantic Richfield Oil Company, and the self-titled uh, businessman Italian former Fiat Olivetti executive called Aurelio Pache, uh, we'll hear more about him in a minute, and the US Secretary of Defense who becomes the head of the World Bank, Robert McNamara, and who calls himself a businessman as well. So these people are all involved in development and they're involved in, in different ways in uh, the organization of the Stockholm Conference. Now, from the outset, all of these individuals had a hand in the organizational developments between 1969 and 1972 and helped shape the outcomes of the conference in different ways. Now, as I've mentioned, at the top was uh, the UN appointed Secretary General, uh, Maurice Strong. Uh, it was Strong who filled his advisory council with uh, perhaps obvious candidates given the emphasis on developing countries, men such as Robert McNamara, who was head of the World Bank, uh, president of the World Bank, and who had, uh, oversaw in that capacity large scale development projects in the third world, or what was known as the third world at the time. Uh, and they all have links to acoustics. They also, um, McNamara and Strong are connected through Barbara Ward, who was the Albert Schweitzer Professor of Economic Development at Columbia University. And she became the person the UN asked to get Strong to take the job, and then also to help organize the actual conference. And she was paid to do that by the World Bank, who paid for her to leave the university and to do, the, do this work. And we'll find out more about the work in a minute. Um, now, Ward's, uh, so there's, there's Maurice Strong, 167 days to Stockholm. There's Robert McNamara and there's Ward. So Ward's conference jobs included organizing its opening lecture series and before then drafting a text that was intended to provide the <coughs> conceptual framework for participants at the conference and for the general public. This became the book, Only One Earth, uh, which was supposedly co-authored by uh, with the American French microbiologist René Dubois, but he was ill in hospital and didn't contribute. So it was Ward that really uh, drafted, began to draft this book. Only One Earth uh, gives us a clue uh, into the, the kinds of um, ideas and thinking uh, that uh, were around at the time and filled out the space of the, the conference. But it's only one of two books that I want to discuss um, in this context as, as books that tell us about um, the kinds of ideas that are in circulation and competing for influence over the meaning of the conference and the kinds of policy outcomes that they'll take away. Now, Ward's book, uh, I, had a, I didn't have a look at the University of Shanghai Library, but it would be worth seeing whether it's there because it got distributed to many libraries around the world. Um, uh, it was, she drafted it, but then she had to send it to more than 100 independent experts uh, for comments on, um, you know, uh, that would be incorporated back into the text. Uh, and... Um, that you know really took uh, issue with many of her claims. Um, amongst the groups that were asked to comment were again businessmen. 
and they were invited via um, a really important NGO, the International Chamber of Commerce. This is a body that um, was organized first off in 1919 as a kind of shadow bureaucracy to the UN, but representing business interests throughout the world, right? So you can see here in this image um, from, the, uh, from 1948, the different countries that are meant to have chambers of commerce that somehow are represented by the International Chamber of Commerce. And by 1945, when the UN is created, the International Chamber of Commerce is given advisory status at the UN. And it has, by the 1970s, more influence than the, uh, um, the European um, Economic Commission. So it's actually uh, a really important body. And so the UN Organising Committee turned to the ICC and say, tell us who should comment on Only One Earth, Barbara Ward's uh, framing book for the conference. So um, that we're actually working with people to try and understand this organisation much more. So there's new um, empirical work being done on the ICC, but it's very clear in the archives of people involved with organizing Stockholm uh, that the ICC uh, um, do a number of things working with other uh, kind of business groups, including um, having conferences before the, before the Stockholm meeting, uh, funded by uh, organizations such as American Metal, which dealt in copper, lead mining, petroleum, potash and silver, and Continental Can a company that produced tin cans and was being um, was slightly concerned about the arrival of aluminium. Anyway, these are so these are industries that are very invested in uh, uh, natural sources and minerals, resources and minerals, and, and the relationship with the developing world and these environmental questions. Uh, they also the ICC also um, end up running uh, meetings with the World Association, World Association of World Federalists. So there are very interesting intersections between Chamber of the International Chamber of Commerce and business interests and these federalist interests, uh, which are in a multilateral interest. And we shouldn't be too um, jump to conclusions about what their ideas are, because it's very interesting, because often um, the, there are many different strands to this. So at one of the meetings they organize, for example, which has you know, all sorts of pharmaceutical companies represented alongside you know, human rights and uh, world government bodies. And the argument that they make is that the um, aims of the Stockholm conference are too modest, right? That given the rapidly accumulating problems of environmental degradation, they want more discussion of how to manage environmental problems in the future through global governance. So we can't really tell um, you know, we shouldn't assume that, you know, business interests are seen as separate from environmental interests, although uh, there are, I think, very fundamental ways in which business interests shift the discourse by the end of the Stockholm conference. Now, this is, um, these are uh, images of the index, oh, sorry, the table of contents of Only One Earth. Um, so you can see it becomes more of a history book. It's sort of, Ward does his history with it. It's, Linda, I'm, I'm sorry to inter interrupt you, but yeah. we, we don't, we don't see any of the images that you seem to be showing. We still so look you at- can't see the, You can't see the, um, the book listings? No, we're still looking at your entry at the very first page. Oh, really? Oh, I'm moving it along, so I'm not sure why. 
Oh, okay. Uh, bring your window to the front. Sorry to interrupt you, but you keep making comments that I, I think we probably right. should be okay. saying something else. So, uh, resume share. What happens now? Is that moving? Can you see anything? No. Um, or maybe if you stop it and then share it again, maybe that. Yeah, I'll do that again. Right, we'll see what happens. <laughs> okay. Now, what can you see? Anything? No, that looks a lot different. That that looks great. Okay, so let me just—I'll just show you what we where we got to before then. Okay, we can go quickly through the images. Sorry, I thought you couldn't see the pictures before. So uh, we don't need that. That's certainly these are people in the World Acoustic Society. Here's you have to see an image of Maurice Strong. You can't miss that. There's Maurice. There's Robert McMara. There's Barbara Ward lecturing. Uh, that's the ICC with all the different countries in 1948. And here's now we're inside the book, Only One Earth and the kinds of headings that she has in the book. Um, and also how many people comment on the book, the different people that get to comment and what they represent, Imperial Oil, International Court of, you know, it's all, all sorts of figures. So quite a lot. And um, you get this, the range of, in, of involvement but also, uh, you know, I, I kept looking for um, connections and, and the archives do actually tell you what they say, which I'll, I'll introduce in a minute. And you can see how when she's writing, things get crossed out because people comment on the text. So the text becomes a really interesting primary historical source for ideas and how they're evolving or being critiqued and changing this period. So, um, uh, International Chamber of Commerce get offered this role of deciding who gets to comment on Only One Earth. And in fact, it becomes Imperial Oil, which is where Marie Strong used to work. Uh, the chair of Bayer, which is a pharmaceutical company in West Germany. The executive of Nippon Steel Corporation, Scandinavian Airline Systems, uh, a Swedish pulp and paper group, Shell Chemicals, Tata, which is a big Indian um, company based in New Delhi, and Ford Motor Corporation in Michigan. Now, Tata, actually, that, that company, which still exists today, was quite nuanced in its comments, emphasizing the importance of economic social justice as one of the ambitions of any post-conference agreement. But others were more critical. So the airline company, SAS, rejects the idea of noise pollution produced by planes. This doesn't exist. Others claim that um, there's no such thing as, uh, you know, the link between the ozone layer and skin cancer. Um, Ford says that lead compounds from car exhaust are not bad for health. <laughs> I mean, you know, so basically you have this kind of discussion about, well, you know, which science is real or not. And uh, the fossil fuel companies object to um, how Ward writes about um, prospecting for oil as ransacking and suggest instead that she should use different verbs not ransacking, but roaming the world looking for new supplies, right? So these kind of nuances of, of meaning and significance with this text. Most accept the need for an anti-pollution mentality, but want it balanced with the need for economic growth. So despite these criticisms, in fact, there were only minimal changes um, uh, in the text, mostly um, uh, sensitive to, the, to these claims of the oilmen. 
and the kinds of verbs they should use. But ultimately, it was Ward's vision that shone through in many of the sections of Only One Earth that commented on ways of tackling the environmental challenges already apparent to scientists whose studies contributed um, to this book. So she argued that um, coal had to be made cleaner, that uh, carbon dioxide um, had to be reduced, emissions, that public transport and electric cars were the answer, as well as alternative sources of energy to replace fossil fuels. And she used available emission statistics to predict the extent of global warming for the year 2000. And even though that's only a minor part of the story at the time, they're much more interested in like, you know, noise pollution and, um, and environmental pollution of the oceans. She does, her prediction of global warming actually um, measured against IPCC figures since then turned out to be absolutely correct, right? So she, on the ball. She, so she was using all the available data quite accurately. She also talked, she was an economist, so she talked interestingly about the diseconomy of the treatment of air and water as free goods, right? And demanded a debate about the calculus of who shall pay the costs in healthcare and quality of life when pollution is at fault. If you couldn't not, that pollution needed to be incorporated into the cost of things so that um, that was one way of ensuring that uh, that the, the effect would be reduced through that through the marketplace, if you like. She supported an international tax system as well as world insurance system to clean up environmental messes in poor cities. She called for an international authority that could take responsibility for dealing with environmental disasters and applauded existing transnational responses such as um, NATO's air pollution research uh, and the kind of environmental work being done at the OECD at the time, and even at the EEC, the European Economic Community. From her perspective, planetary order, as she called it, the establishment of more international governance was crucial for meeting trans-border challenges. Now, not everyone agreed with her, but there are, I think, similarities between her work and well, the later work of William Nordhaus, who recently got a Nobel Prize in economics for, he, for what he says about the economics of climate change. And that's a really interesting genealogy, I think, that I want to pursue at some point. My own interest lies in Ward's critique of what she called the irrational confidence in permanent economic growth, in the belief in unlimited physical resources. And her favorite word was interdependence, a concept that she believed captured the facts of a shared biosphere and a planetary economy in which no nations in the world were outside the network of trade and investment. And she emphasized the importance of making the planet, this is her, these are her words, a center of rational loyalty for all mankind. So the question is, you know, so what does it matter, this book? I mean, it's a good question because in fact, it didn't really, it never became very popular. You can still find copies everywhere. It was translated into a lot, lot of languages, but people had to give it away at the conference. The book they really wanted was a different one, it was this one. And it was a book that came about because of this businessman, Aurelio Pache, in the same context of the Stockholm Conference as a kind of alternative vision of what science was supposed to do to deal with the environment. Now, Aurelio Pache was at Stockholm uh, and he gave one of the opening lectures that Ward had uh, organized. He was there because he, was, um, he had founded this organization called the Club of Rome, which still existed. Uh, 
he'd come out of a business background. He had uh, worked with various Italian companies, but he also in China, including in China, actually in the 1930s. Um, but he also had developed what he called the first truly multinational organization, which was a private development investment bank that operated in Latin America with backing from Fiat, uh, the car company and other firms and banks. In, and then of course, since 1968, Pache had uh, uh, founded the Club of Rome with uh, European scientists, economists and industrialists to discuss global problems. And it was Pache who got the funding to uh, produce this study called the Limits to Growth. Limits to Growth was actually in competition with only one earth as the key text shaping the Stockholm conference. Maurice Strong would argue that limits of growth, that idea supported the whole concept of Stockholm. That is the growing need for man to acquire the economic and social and political instruments to deal with new interdependencies. The book sold 16 million copies in over 30 languages unlike only one earth which had to be given away at Stockholm right um, and it's a very famous book so you can still see it it's still discussed these days it was published in March 1972 so just prior and it grew out of the same multidisciplinary networks that set up the conference uh, including the Akistics World Akistic Society and the growing interest amongst all these people in the um, use of computer generated visualizations of networks. So here you have this very networked community, really interested in the in how you could use computer modeling and feedback loops to generate um, world modeling for showing how um, the kind of environmental issues are tied up and connected with other questions. Now Pache commissioned the study behind the publication and raised the money for this research uh, was funded by Volkswagen to build an interactive model of the world's environmental predicament based on simulations of exponential growth. The money paid uh, a team at MIT in Boston um, to uh, create this systems dynamics technique and uh, of world modeling. And basically, um, it presented realism as a question of the transnational nodes of commerce and production that added up to these new interdependencies of globalization. It was meant to show the limits of the expansion of economies and markets relative to the number of humans. So it was neo-Malthusian, right? So the idea was um, very much, you know, that you feed in data on population growth, industry and agriculture, pollution, um, non-renewable natural resources into these complex computer calculations. And on that basis, you work out what's the limits of or the physical limits of the world's material prosperity. And the conclusion was that the world faced an energy and commodity come pollution and population crisis, right? There were too many people in the world to be able to uh, feed and to create a you know, certain living standard given the limits of, um, of, of natural resources. The book that resulted broke new ground as the first global model commissioned by an independent body rather than the government or the UN. That's amongst the kind of things that were said about it. It was also critiqued by economists as being 
portraying a false picture of realism that you know there was no oversight of the kind of data that went into it etc um but nevertheless it was really influential and um Pache talked you know his status now was attached to not just the club of rome but to this book that had been produced and he saw it as in his lecture at stockholm it's very interesting but you know it's clear that he saw the population problem as a problem in the developing world not in the developed world so the problem was about you know that the developing world wanted to live like the developed world and that was not possible because if you did that then you'd run out of everything right so limits of growth um was presented as a critique of permanent economic growth uh like only one earth they shared that uh but um it was much more about uh, population questions uh, and development questions than only one Earth. Now, the thing is, uh, it's still not clear uh, how this shift happened in the thinking and limits to growth, but originally the idea was that the conclusions of limits of growth were you couldn't have growth, right? Zero growth was the only way to go forward. But that shifted in the course of the production of the materials and the books, it shifted to an argument about what we now call sustainability, that you could have growth at a sustainable level. So this zero growth versus sustainable growth, this shift is something that really needs to be understood because um, it's part of the impact of the Stockholm conference. So these are just small glimpses into the presence of, you know, various kinds of actors, including business actors and economists in um, the setting of agendas uh, around the global governance of the environment. We're now doing all sorts of work, you know, trying to count how many business people are there, what they represent, et cetera, and trying to give it to flesh it out. But at the moment, the evidence points to a number of areas in which um, I think historical investigation can be useful for helping us uh, flesh out the institutional context of global corporation particularly the roles of non-state actors, the intersections of economics and political realms of ideas, agency and institutions, and even the role of shifting economic imaginaries in the shaping of global governance agendas. So now I'll just uh, come to my conclusions. These are images of um, some of the world modeling that you can see comes out of limits of growth. And um, let's see uh, some of my conclusions. So as many uh, contemporary, um, uh, sorry, so I, I think the significance of this at the moment, this long history of, of the international engagement with challenges of the environment and climate change, I've uh, seen through the uh, history of the 1972 Stockholm Environment Conference, are really useful for thinking about hey, you know, how we've got to where we are, you know, and um, just how not only little progress, but kind of how backwards and forwards we go in some of this debate about uh, climate change, about environmental challenges and how they're tackled. Now, the Stockholm Conference is, of course, remembered as, as a forum in which, for the first time, um, non-state actors are really incorporated into these global governance issues. But I think it also, you know, when you start to look closely, it presents us with a disorientating picture of the both the long notice we've had of a looming fossil fueled um, fossil fuel fueled environmental crisis of planetary proportions and that language planetary, um, but also of the, the range of, um, uh, of 
different of business interests that have been involved from the beginning in, in these international organizations that take them on board and also the role of women such as Ward and, and Margaret Mead, who I haven't talked about very much um, in this story. So my concern here has been to reflect on, you know, what particularly adding and understanding the role of business uh, tells us. Well, I think it thickens out our understanding of international institutions of how they operate and they're different in uh, kind of uh, audiences, but also actors. They're not just bureaucracies or even delegation, you know, state delegations. They do kind of work across this private public um, divide. They operate in an international public sphere made up of a range of actors, networks. And um, what's interesting is just how conscious they are in this period of an organization like the UN of business as a cohort that they want to bring on board and be involved in. Um, I, can, I won't go into more examples because I'm already taking too long, but um, Pache actually has a very close relationship with the UN Director General at the time, Kurt Waldheim, and the bureaucracy is quite suspicious of the role of the Club of Rome, but Waldheim sees the Club of Rome as the, and Pache as the group that he should go to for advice on many of these issues. Um, too influential to be ignored, too notorious to be embraced is how the, some of the people in the UN bureaucracy view this relationship. And there's also Western and superficial. So it's, it's a kind of imbalance in terms of um, the influence of Western business. Other sources suggest that the category of businessmen captured international imaginaries and institutions in this period. Um, and business could be all sorts of things, but it's very much the ICC and the Club of Rome in this period. Uh, the 1972 conference is filled with evidence of regular lunches for businessmen uh, in the setting up of the, of the um, conference at the UN and uh, with the aim of educating them in the purpose of the UN. Uh, okay, so the second point I wanna make is that economic actors, um, are not just businessmen of course, but they're economists like Barbara Ward and um, that they, are already engaging very um, in very you know, profound ways scientific knowledge about the physical world and in the environmental challenges. And so there's a kind of world modeling that goes on, but also I think there's really interesting um, engagements, negotiations of, you know, what kind of economies should we have, right? What do you do with growth? Should you, should you um, limit it? But also what kinds of tax systems and um, methods, marketing, market methods should we introduce in order to um, really try to change the relationship of, um, uh, to change the ways in which e economies can intervene in these uh, environmental issues. The last point I wanna make is about what I call the complex history of um, globalization and uh, planetary versus globalized thinking. So this is something, just bear with me, I wanna try it out. Um, so, in this period, I find very interesting that there's a discourse about planetary. Uh, I started with Utant's, um, you know, call to, you know, planetary realism. Barbara Ward talks about the planetary. And it's a much more holistic sort of idea than global at the time, because it's very much about, you know, the, the idea that, um, like only one Earth, right? So linking the geophysical context of environmental questions with um, uh, you know, specific economic and political answers. And 
I think it's really interesting that at the Stockholm conference, planetary themes were well established. And planetary became, you know, a basis for arguments about global governance and commitments and a fundamental questioning of human subjectivity and capitalism. And uh, Ward captures this mood as she promotes the Stockholm conference as the starting point, she calls it, for a new sense of planetary realism beyond our narrow nationalisms, our divisive ideologies, our gulfs of wealth and poverty. But what actually happens is that, um, you know, in the process of this shift from zero growth to sustainability, but also from um, the uh, interest in planetary to this world modeling model and economics, you do have a shift, I think, to globalization, which, is a, which doesn't capture the thicker language and, and aspirations and ambitions around this period. And I, I'm quite interested in, in how this ha happens. Um, so I think adding economic actors, business and businessmen back into our understanding of the changing character of global imaginaries and their political significance reconnects debates about the environment and development, as well as exposing complicated, uh, complicating interdisciplinary and not always visible connections. It evokes the longer history of the international governance of economic problems and economic actors in international politics, of the place of money in um, this context and the forms of ideas about international taxation and social justice uh, that were as much a part of the discourse of you know, human environment in this period as uh, actual questions of, um, or statements on the nature of environmental challenges. So uh, I think it enriches you know, our, our own, um, the context for thinking about the discourse around environmental questions and economies in the present as well. So I'll just leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sluger, uh, Glenda, Glenda Sluger, I'm sorry. Uh, this has certainly been uh, fascinating because that's something that, you know, yeah, as you said, it has a, a lot of overlap with my work, but yeah. I will certainly keep quiet for the beginning and um, open up the floor to other people for questions or comments. I see Ved here, Ved Barua. Uh, very happy to see the name. This is also a um, a colleague who is in India at the moment. So I'm not sure how good his connection is, but very happy to see the name. Anybody who wants to show their faces, please do, because it's yeah, much when, more pleasant. When, yeah, you. actually, it would be nice to see more faces. It makes it easier to have a discussion. And also, when you do have a question, please identify yourself. I'm sorry about the PowerPoint. It took so long for me to work out. It wasn't working. Sorry about that. Oh, no problem about that. Nobody else is jumping in. This is, uh, yeah, people are a little uh, shy about this here. Um, yeah, I have lots of questions, of course. I, okay, let's start with two, maybe. Um, something you didn't mention or you didn't go into very much when you're talking about the, uh, the, the, the conference was that the, well, the, the prehistory was uh, especially one of conflict between um, the North and the South. 
between uh, high income countries and low income countries and um, you know, for a while as, as as you know it wasn't it was even unsure if it was even going to come and go because um uh you know a, a lot of low income countries felt that uh, it was the rich north that was trying to tell them to stop growing and to to you know now that they had become rich to draw the line and say okay you don't grow anymore um did did you at the same time, I must say, I have also read some information, but more in terms of humor, I have, rumors. I haven't been able to really back this up with sources. It was not among those that I saw that um, part of the um, representatives from northern countries also helped organize this meeting and take part in it in order for this not to become too successful, in order to make sure that there wouldn't be um, demands made uh, for environmental protection that would that would hurt that would really hurt so have you found that anything of interest from the north and from the south coinciding and actually um trying to slow this conference so there was a lot of complaining um, there was quite a bit of complaining that uh you know, the quality of the scientists, for example, that they brought in was very low, right? So they didn't, so there was a lot of disillusionment afterwards, even though that, you know, people were happier that they, you know, created, decided to create UNEP and have it in Kenya. And um, Maurice Strong wasn't happy about that. He didn't want to go, you know, he thought it'd be in Switzerland. He didn't want to have to go to Nairobi, but he did. Um, uh, and so there were there was disillusionment, but you know I don't know at this stage it isn't something that I've been able to track. Like who chose the scientists, right? It's not clear to me. Um, and uh, um, the there is also it's clear in the uh, discussions that uh, by this stage you know development is also a business, right? It's, you know private businesses are brought into development, so. Uh, there's no, there is still interest in, you know, um, growth in the, in the South, in the global South, um, from many of these, like Pache, et cetera. So the ants, you know, so there's a kind of, I think that the, the, the way that's sorted is you can have growth, but you can't have population growth, right? You can have, you know, economic growth, but not population growth. So they try to kind of balance sustainability around population issues, not around um, industrialization um, programs, for example. Uh, and I, you know, so I haven't looked that much at the, at this stage, and there is, it's clear that, for example, the, so the money connection with Ward, for example, so Ward is running, um, she's not only a professor at the at Columbia, she's also running this Institute for um, Environment and Development and development gets added on after Stockholm as a necessary part of the Institute. Wow. And it's funded by, it becomes harder after Stockholm to get funding from um, philanthropic bodies like Rockefeller, et cetera, who funded it before. They move into national contexts, not international. So she has to rely on funding from Aspen Institute, which is basically also funded by this guy that runs the oil company Atlantic Richfield. And so you have these very quite progressive think tanks 
that are funded by oil men who are convinced that it's a tax break, but also become kind of a, like the kind of status that it gives them. And it, it, it makes, their, makes them slightly, um, uh, you know, more nuanced figures, harder to sort of pin down, if you like. But it also is clear that they don't want the, um, in some of this correspondence, it's clear that they don't want development to become an issue at the conference. So it's kind of paradoxical, Iris, because you know they're probably on the side of the global south in terms of wanting to keep development going and not to stop growth in that context. So I mean, I think unteasing some of that would be really, really interesting. And I haven't made it a focus of what I'm doing, but it would be really, really interesting to see a bit more. And I'm just wondering if you, if I mean, if you find anything about contacts between businessmen, and I suppose those were usually business people from the north, um, and you know, and governmental representatives from the south. How that's what, what we're trying to do. Right? But it's a yeah. lot. After Stockholm and through UNEP, there is a lot of conference organizing with business via UNEP, right? So that's what we're trying to actually now catalog. It's extraordinary, right? So what is UNEP, what is it the conduit for, right? And it seems to be a conduit for this development that is really a kind of a rentier development from the north into the south. So, you know. So that split between the north and south around development, isn't that clear? Because <laughs> because it's there's so much private investment in development by this stage that I think they from the north that it, it, it's, it suits them to continue um, to, to be on the side of the global south on those issues. Um, that's a really fascinating talk and. Um, Actually, uh, I, I can just about recall the uh, Stockholm conference, and uh, it's a very interesting development in international politics in a way. Uh, I, I suppose one, one of the things I'd be interested in, I don't know whether you, you've covered this in your research yet, is uh, given, you know, this was the, the, one of the contexts with, within which this conference took place was the Cold War. I mean, the Cold War... Were, we tend to forget about that now, but the Cold War was still raging. But of course, there had been a big shift because um, uh, Nixon had opened up China in February 1972. Uh, there was that, it was a period of detente. So um, I wonder what, what did the Eastern Bloc make of this conference and what contribution did they make to the dialogue uh, and also to discussions on this because you focused a lot on the business interests and effectively let's call it you know the more western world but i'd be fascinated to learn if you you know if what the eastern bloc view on many of these issues was or if they well, the problem was that there was an issue around the involvement of the gdr so mm. west germany objected to the gdr being involved so then the welsh pack countries didn't participate so the soviet union was so yeah. it's not to say they don't have an opinion on any of these things, yeah. particularly given their kind of relationships with the global south at that time, right? In terms of, um, you know, networks of influence, et cetera. Yeah. So 
um, but but that is one of the contexts. I've been trying to work out what, where China is in all this because China, China, China took China. as far yeah, as but China. what view it, I'm not sure okay. on these issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. So whether uh, some, you know, whether they wanted to be involved or they get involved later through, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it is an important and, part of the history. Yeah. Could, could you say a little bit more about the role of, I mean, you've talked about experts, the kind of expert communities and so on and, and business. Uh, I mean, what about the, the kind of fledgling NGO sector? I mean, it, it wasn't the kind of global civil society that we think of today, no. uh, but did, did they have any significant influence or what's the kind of organizing in the same way among civil society actors? With, right, so with there any is actually quite, there are quite good studies of this. And um, ah. so I don't focus on it, but they are. And, um, you know, one of them talks about the dominance of the Californian sort of alternative movement. So the NGO, you know, spatially, if you imagine Stockholm, right? So you can mm. see this on YouTube. You can watch, com you can watch um, videos of the conference, which, show you how it's spatially organized in Stockholm at the time. So there's a part of it that is the NGO area. And in Margaret Mead's papers, you know, there's all the stuff about she goes there and it's kind of a mess. And so they vote her in and she becomes this unifying voice for them. And she's, so there's this anthropologist, right? <laughs> we all know from her book on Samoa in the 1920s. By this stage, I mean, in the 1940s, she had worked for the American government to help them um, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff about, you know, anthropologies of the Soviet Union to help them think about how Soviet Union might be thinking about the war. And it was all about how, you know, they, how they swaddled their young and how that led to certain kind of, you know, it's a bit crazy. But she also, that's when she started to get into uh, com the computers that were being developed and the, the concept of feedback loops, right? which are very important in now in the kind of environmental modeling, of course. Mm. So, but she became very interested. And so she's part of this, all these human environment networks. She's a big voice in Habitat, which is still around. Mm. Habitat mm. is a huge influence. So if you think human environment, right? So it's about changing the urban environment, then Habitat is really important. And they've got all these kind of youth conferences everywhere before and afterwards. So they're very, actually, it's sort of fledgling, but it's very organized. And they all go and they're all there and it becomes really organized because Margaret Mead becomes their spokesperson. Um, and there's, there's another kind of more hippie sort of part to it uh, that's been written about as well. But so, so on some views, it's a Californian version of um, the alternative movement that's influencing uh, the NGOs, right? That's dominating. But there are these other bodies like Habitat, et cetera. So, uh, and and then um, so they compete a little bit with you're right with the business interests yeah and I, if I can remember the name it's Felicity something there's a fantastic book by an anthropologist oh, right. okay. about, yeah. about this yeah and and um, I mean I know you're still engaged in the research what, what uh, any legacies of the seventy two conference today what do you think it's it's kind of legacy has been right so there's a new there's a book i mean eris you might know it now after me um uh bernstein i think bernstein on neoliberalism and yeah uh, the um in the environment um okay. is it william bernstein no anyway, it's, so this, it's the the um, the liberal environmentalist yeah okay. and yeah. that argument is from right 
you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but is that the 1990s um, see this kind of, um, it's the 1990s around the, you know, the Rio conference on the environment. Mm. Is that, you know, after Stockholm, it really is until then. Yeah. There's more world modeling that goes on that Club of Rome pays for it, like it brings Nobel Prize winning economists like Jan Tinbergen in to, to kind of do world modeling uh, and rethink the international order, et cetera. But actual global conference doesn't take place till Rio. And, in, yeah. and so the argument has been that that's when you get this kind of neoliberal um, version of sustainability, right? That we get stuck with in terms of yeah. legacies. But actually, I think you, one needs to look further. I think the yeah. 70s, and it's not that it's like sustained. I think they're kind of, you know, the moment starts and stops and, but I think the 70s is already really crucial in terms of, mm. um, you know, both giving, I mean, one, you can understand why you would want fossil fuel companies involved in these debates, of course, right? Or business, because, you know, they have to be part of the deal. But the question is who's influencing whom, right? So, and, and, and really what happens to zero growth versus sustainability, I think is really crucial. And, um, and what role Stockholm might already play. And as I said, you know, UNEP, so the UN Environmental Program that gets set up in Nairobi as one of the outcomes of Stockholm. Again, you know, when we look closely, what is it doing? You know, I think its mission is development and it is about bringing businesses into connection with um, the global South, not just businesses that bring things, but that actually extract stuff, you know, and take it out into the marketplace as well. So. Um, how that works, I think, is, is one of the issues that I want to kind of follow up on. It's a team of us working on it as a sub sure. yeah, part yeah. of the, uh, the, the ERC project. Mm. Yeah, great. I mean, I, I agree with it. 1970s uh, uh, made, you know, there were some very significant changes in world politics in the 90s, which are still resonating today. So, yeah. 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 Thank you. Thanks, Linda. Other questions? Uh, yeah, I have, if I may. Uh, professors, uh, Ms. Glendas, Lucas, thank you very much for your for the lecture you provided. Um, I'm Jorge from Peru, and I have a couple of questions. Uh, you have mentioned about the climate issue, which is nowadays international, uh, that matters a lot because pollution, environmental contamination, we have. And also you mentioned about the capitalist system that most of the 75, almost 75% of the countries around the world, they, they are based on this system. And or in the climate and capitalist on the economic sector. Uh, we know that in the last 21st years, uh, the climate change has become a very important in, in international politics. This is, uh, they have several books written on this, how the, uh, Humans that have been polluting our our world, and there is not there is not a a, people, a planet B. There is only one planet, and we have to take care of a lot of this. So they have uh, countries around the world they start implement policies in order to reduce the gas emissions, in order to 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 control deforestation, air air and water pollution, and here. And there's a activists that they went to protest because they want to, to have a better world to, to save our planet, in yeah. other words. But also we could see the rise of uh, entrepreneurship because we are in the capitalist, uh, most of the country we have 
capitalist system, we the rights of entrepreneurship and business who take the opportunities of these uh, climate issues. And, and instead of looking negatively, they look positively, they look as opportunity for business. And they make a lot of profits do, uh, in, in this field. But my question goes, goes how the government can make this uh, environmental issues in a positive uh, as an opportunity to think to increment to get some I mean some to make some income and to increment their 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 growth. Okay, so I mean, in a way, I guess the um, there are lots of implications of you know this very good question, and I'm not you know I'm not a policy expert, but I do think one of the issues is like which government, right? So. The history that I talked about today is really about, you know, the assumption that these are questions that need to be coordinated at a global level, right? So that becomes one of the possibilities after, as a result of Stockholm, that, and even in the Cold War, you know, if you think about in what happens in Europe in the Cold War between East and West Europe, the environment is a really, I mean, Tony will remember this too. But the environment was a really important question and that you couldn't just have, you know, acid rain, which was a big issue in this from the 80s on, didn't stop, maybe even the 70s, didn't stop, you know, at the border of Eastern Europe. If acid rain was being created in Eastern Europe, it went into Western Europe. So these issues about the environment, you know, they're not limited to one country. So the idea of global transnational multilateral governance became important in this period. So I think the, one of the questions for me, for you, is I would ask, well, you know, so who's going to decide these issues? Where will they be decided, right? So, and how important is the global context for making such decisions? And at what point, you know, and I think in the, in the 21st century, what's really interesting is the disinclination of nation states to negotiate their policies or to coordinate them at this global level. So Kyoto protocols and all these issues, they're actually much more controversial than they were in the 70s. That the multilateral approach to these questions, deciding should we have introduced, you know, um, uh, carbon trade-offs and, you know, market sort of based solutions, you know, that, that they're not being decided internationally or globally, but actually domestically. So, I think what the point I would make is also that you know history is interesting because it shows that um, it's not like that we move forward, but actually go backwards and forwards around um, how to answer, how to how to solve these questions, and how imaginative we can be about how to solve them, whether in terms of economic mechanisms, market mechanisms, but also about governance, whether it's local or global, right? So I don't answer your question exactly, but I'm asking you more questions and saying, I think that there's lots of implied um, challenges in the question you put. I hope, I'm sorry that it's not, a, anyway, but you have more questions for me. Let's see if I can <laughs> fudge some more questions. You had some more, Jorge? Yeah, uh, yeah, I have. Uh, it's now regarding to the United Nations Human, Devel uh, human Environmental Environment Conference. Right. Uh, do, do you think it has been effective? Effective. Uh, the the I mean the results that since 1972 until now has been carry on. Do you think any positive effects that it it helps or it 
give uh, put a lot of contribution to governments to settle down policies in order to to fight again against these uh, environmental problems. And what do you think in the future will be? Will continue being like that, or there will be some changes? Or yep. So I think um, as much as one can focus on really sort of complicated questions about vested interests, that uh, I guess the legacies that people take from 1972, and this goes back to Tony's question, is that uh, it's an example of how NGOs become important uh, in pushing you know, uh, a broader uh, political agenda, an economic agenda. It's a really good example of just how rich the kind of uh, economic thinking was about what should be done, what could be done, expectations about what needed to be done. And I think um, at this moment, given the sort of, well, it depends how you see it, right? I, you know, maybe it's a good moment, maybe it's not, but I do think that it's worth remembering that the impulse, you know, to the conference itself as, uh, and the planetary sort of discourse actually, as, as complicated as it is, uh, as a really important part of, you know, global history our national history as well. I mean, where was Peru in this discussion? I don't really know, but you could find out. And was Peru more engaged then than now in these issues? You know, for example, I know Australia was more engaged then than now, right? In thinking about how to participate globally and how and what, what needed to be done, right? So it's really good, it's good to have that there as a measure of what's possible, what isn't possible. So to learn lessons in both ways. Yeah, uh, about the political agenda that you have mentioned that now NGOs try to have a broader political agenda and to share all this uh, and the expectation that they should, they should have and what they should be done. I think if it's a good moment now, I think it's is already a, a good moment to 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 think about it to do to to become in action because experts of scientists they have already said that we have limited time if we don't yeah. work uh, until that that, that deadline uh, we will be late. Yeah. To, to no, save I agree our with you. The question is whether is is the world rising to the moment? Is it a good time in the sense that you know? Uh, do you think that you know that? Uh, there's more positive sort of constructive attempts to do something than there were maybe before the pandemic even. I mean, there is a now a major, you know, the United States is now actually being much more proactive in, in trying to shift the global discussion around these issues. So that's good. But also other states is a lot of, you know, the same context that produces vaccine nationalism, is that able to tack tackle the environment in a non-nationalist way, right? So um well we have to be optimistic but maybe you know what are the limits and the possibilities at the moment what what else could be done is probably the question yeah sure thank you very much Glenda, for your for your answers right okay thank you other questions um hello prof hello um, thank you yes prof um thank Do you, you have very a much camera? can you use a camera um, yes, please, just a minute. There we go. Thank you. Mm. Yes, yeah, so um, probably uh, my question is not 
very specific to the conference, um, but then it's also related to um, um, environmental protection. I think uh, recently I read an article which was trying to explain um, the cost of, I mean, um, ensuring environmental protection. As um, we know, um, most often when we try to solve a problem, um, there is also another problem that we can create. So um, I think the author was trying to cite an example um, with regards to um, the use of electric cars, right? In order to um, reduce um, emission in terms of air pollution. And then he was trying to emphasize on the fact that he's going to put pressure on exploiting, I mean, the natural resource and the energy that we actually will need for these vehicles. So are they in the, it's like we're in a cycle. So we try to protect the environment and then we go back to actually causing other harms. So I want to know if there is actually hope, if this is the case, is there a hope for international protect, um, I mean, sorry, environmental protection? I mean, I know Iris might be better on this than me, but I think that's why a lot of people are arguing that there has to be very, one needs to go beyond, you know, sort of, you know, gestures, I suppose. And then there's something more radical has to uh, be implemented than as you're right. So electric cars, you still have to generate electricity somehow, right? So, you know, then you have to start thinking about public transport more or other ways of working. So very much more radical kind of redesigning of cities. Um, so maybe one goes back to a human environment context. But I think these, these questions were very real in the 1970s. You know, we're running out of, we've run out of time almost to do anything about it, but they were thought about in those precisely in those ways, like how, how radical do you have to um, be in your thinking? Can you go back to, and this is why now people are saying, can you back, go back to the normal of before the pandemic? Do you need a new normal? And the new normal needs to be, you know, Green New Deal sort of thinking, um, uh, but a, an overhaul and, and also, you know, the, the um, thinking beyond, you know, capitalism, I suppose, uh, and in, in and, and really rethinking kind of the, the, the social structures of um, the way in which you organize our lives. But I'm not an expert on it. You know, I'm talking to you as like a kind of an interested citizen when we get to this stage. But Iris, you might have some views on this. Okay, um, thank you very much. Thank you, Prince, for your question. Where are you, Prince? Um, I'm in Ghana right now. You're in Ghana, wow, whereabouts? Yeah. In Addis? Um, Cape Coast, Cape Coast oh, in right. Ghana. And Ghana, on Ghana, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, Ghana is in West Africa. I don't know. If yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah. I thought you were in Shanghai, so you're in Ghana. Um, yes, bro. I'm still in Ghana. Yeah, it's actually. I mean, your question. Uh, I could jump onto that. I won't answer the question. I will ask you a question. It's your job today. <laughs> um, but the, the feeling that I sometimes get, I mean, on, on the one hand, uh, this, this is really the beginning very much of international debates about this. So um, when you say, well, has anything been achieved or what has been achieved? I think to some extent, it, I, my feeling is that it's immense because at the time, you know, the, the environmental ministers didn't attend because there were no environmental ministers. So countries at the time usually did not have ministries or departments in charge of that. So, I mean, com compared to that, we've come a long way and, and it was certainly one of the drivers for that. But 
when I read the sources of that time, I, I often have a feeling, well, I mean, what, what these people are discussing then is what we're still discussing today. Just do, do you yeah, get yeah. the same feeling of this deja vu of like, the oh, absolutely. and that's depressing, right? Yeah. Because it's even less, I mean, like this, you know, it's even less sort of imaginative or, um, um, you know, broad thinking than before in a way. I mean, I, I, that's the shocking part of it. But I suppose it depends on where you are. I mean, I don't know what the, you know, maybe Africa is a more exciting place in terms of the discourse around these issues at the moment than, than you know, Europe, Eastern Europe is a disaster. Um, if you think about, you know, the kinds of nationalism and anti, the anti-globalism extends to, you know, environmental questions and the lack of engagement, you know, in a country like Australia, which is very wealthy, you know, the lack of actual, you know, people voting in governments that refuse to talk about climate change, even though the impact of it on a country like this is, you know, it's huge. It's really, really depressing. But I don't want to depress any of you. I think you're all, you know, you're young and you need to be the ones that take this on. That's why you're at the Center for Global Development. We're trying that at the moment and, and Jorge is in the class and so is Miriam. We're trying to, to have as a, as a course assignment to come up with a positive view, but it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe one should invite Greta Thunberg into your seminar. Maybe she's yeah. good at being, I mean, she's, someone said to me that she's very angry, isn't she? <laughs> of course she's angry. Why wouldn't you be angry? Yeah. Well, I, what I feel, Professor, is that since that time, since the first time that United Nations Human Environmental Conference started in 1972 till now, our days, uh, to, to get some positive things, I think just bureaucratic stuff has increased, has been in, in a positive way, and also the people mind thinking about to take, to take, to take care more about the environmental, uh, this problematic. But since that, since that time till now, pollution has increased. Yeah. Uh, air pollution, water pollution. Uh, Plastic pollution, toxic pollution. It has increased. I, I, I'm still trying to figure out what was the, I mean, productivity, I mean, the the, the, the positive thing or the leg, the good legacy that it, this company could have, I mean, till now, yeah. in our days. But, you know, you have to think, Jorge, number one, it was half a century ago. So Tony, hate to depress you, but it was like, you gotta think. So, you know, in 50 years, it's a long time. Because if you think about between the first world war and the second world war, for example, that's not even 30, I mean, 50 years is a long time. And so what happens over that time is the legacies of things don't just, things don't just continue because but people have to keep remembering or doing something with it for its legacy to continue, right? It might have a kind of institutional legacy because it establishes organizations like UNEP, the UN Environmental Program. But what is done with it is the interesting thing. And people forget. I mean, right now, um, we just, uh, I'm just publishing a book called Sites of International Memory, and it's essays from different people. But the idea behind it is that you know, we'd actually have forgotten a lot of the uh, the international thinking of the 20th century. We don't have it anymore. 
um, we're less international thinking than we were, or less global even than we were, even though we're very globalized as a world, that there was much more interest in multilateral institutions in the 20th century than in the 21st, right? So you may not agree with me, I'm not sure, but I do think you can't assume that things just go on, right? Something, what's really interesting is how people forget, <laughs> forget what happened in 72. And to remember it, historians have to come along and remind them. And then it depends what they find, right? So I'm finding both good things. I think, you know, you can say good things because a rich engagement with what do you need to do? Introduce all these new kinds of ways of thinking about economies and, and growth. And then bad things in the sense that, you know, what you described, you know, kind of a utilization of this for self-interest so that it's uh, and a killing off of really the most important ideas in some ways, which doesn't mean they don't get taken up again, but that's what historians then need to look at or anyone, social scientists, you know, when do the ideas become important? Why do they stop? How do institutions help them grow? Which kinds of actors put them into the public sphere and what happens to them afterwards? Yeah. So legacies are things that mm, we can't predict exactly. And it's not inevitable that they uh, work in a particular way. So the legacy of 72 is probably, oh, everybody's forgotten it, but we can see institutions and we can remember it and remind people that there's more kinds of legacies that uh, they can draw, you know, inspiration from or caution from. They can look, you know, to learn lessons from. That's why you should yeah, all become the, historians after your time at the global. I totally agree with you. Yeah, it's true that since uh, Professor Ayer mentioned that at that time we didn't, we don't have minister of environmental minister, but now we have, and the people, and there are some, several policies that implemented uh, right. to take care of, of environmental issues in, in, in our planet. So maybe the, the 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 fail was not in the conference on that time. Maybe the fail is on how our our policy, if our policies are effective or not, our government's policies are effective or not. Yeah, or oh, what we've forgotten. I mean, I think you know, in Peru, Peru was part of also in that context. What would be interesting is look at Chapal, you know, the um, economic commission that was set up by the UN in Latin America, and was very important in this period in you know, articulating alternative ideas about development, Raoul Prebush, Prebush, et cetera, and growth, and whether or not, in fact, how the environmental issues were taken up through those kinds of more local regional bodies in um, Latin America. That would be a really interesting project, actually. I don't think anyone's done it. So there are lots of different influences and, and possible legacies on environmental questions through these multilateral organizations. In different parts of the world. In Africa, there was UNECA, which is was based in that was in, I think in Ethiopia, I think in Addis, UNECA, um, which still exists as well, and is the UN Economic Commission for Africa. And so was that implementing environmental policies? It's not just UNEP in Nairobi, but actually these other uh, regional multilateral bodies that are about development, but also probably about environment. Yeah, thank you very much. That's all for me. <laughs> okay. Okay. Anybody else? Any other question here? Miriam, go ahead. Yeah, I have a question. Uh, yeah, Miriam from Nigeria. So regarding the conference, was there any issue on the rising population of human on in the environment as 
the as human has continued the the number of human beings has continued to grow in recent time was there any issue that has been discussed on the effect of the rising rising growth of human being in in the conference yeah it was a really good question. so some people said that that's that that that's what you had to stop the the numbers of the population growth right and mainly in the global south not in the north in the global south and um, other people said no because actually you know new methods of agriculture etc would always mean you could kind of work it out so there were different views and so we call the ones where um, but you probably know this but the language that gets used is a neo-Malthusian right so this Thomas Malthus is this thinker from the 18th century who said you know you can't at some point you know if you have too many people you can't have enough resources to feed everybody etc and so in this context of of Stockholm conference neo so new Malthusianism um, is really influential so the club of Rome are neo-Malthusians Barbara Ward is a neo-Malthusian they all the quite a, there's famous books from the time called um, uh, oh yeah what are they called Tony are they like the population bomb uh, yeah that's it all right population bomb and 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 so Aurelio Pache's lecture at the UN uh, Stockholm conference uh, is all about the population numbers uh, and so that's the growth they want to stop but not development not industrialization. Limits of growth. The, the limits to growth is I, my reading of that is more balanced. Is that um, I mean, as you said, they look at these five factors, and if, if I remember correctly, that their finding is you have to stop all of them. If you, yeah. if you change just no, no, one factor, right. that's not going to do it. But yeah, but what I think Pache and others really push on the population side of it. Okay. No, no, because the book itself and the study, you know. That's the thing, right? So there's a kind of zero growth argument in it too. But what comes out is a sustainability argument. So, I mean, it's part of, I mean, it's there already, but that's kind of the option that comes out of the conference, hmm. not zero growth for sustainability. Any other question? Anybody? Uh, I just found out something. Of <laughs> Uh, positive things of all these environmental problem problematic, I think it could be to uh, uh, limit a, 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 a new population burn. I mean, we see people, we see our what we are facing several climate change, problematic issues, environment, pollutions, and sometimes families they think to don't have more baby because they are they feel like guilty or to bring newborns to this kind of uh, society with problems, to this kind of uh, environmental issue, maybe at the end, there's gonna be another pandemic, which will cause a lot of death To So I think it's a, it's a, it's a positive thing. It's a positive thing of the, the uh, uh, environmental problem. Yeah, or it could be depressing. I mean, if, if you feel that you can't have children. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's a good point. Thank you very much. Thanks for your comments. So I, I was interested in this um, notion of the global imaginary, because I think that's actually quite a significant uh, legacy in some ways. Because if you think of, you know, the era of the time and certainly the Cold War and 
the world being divided, uh, et cetera, et cetera, which was a dominant kind of global imaginary. It, it did at least start to shift that uh, in quite significant ways. And if you look academically, I think, um, you know, uh, my own area, international relations, what, you know, this was part of a whole discussion that was going on about interdependence, that notion of it, which then spread, you know, because what was going on economically was a strong sense that the world was very much more economically interconnected, except for the East, yeah. that is. Um, and, and that this was changing, transforming uh, international politics, the management of the international economy and so on. And I think that the environmental issues were, were part of that intellectual shift. Um, and in many respects, um, it, it changed uh, the subject of international relations quite hugely, which had been dominated uh, by a very state-centric perspective. So I think there are lots of other consequences which, of which it was part. I'm not saying uh, it was necessarily a primary causal factor, but it was part of quite a big intellectual shift and in economics as well. Because if you think of economics, uh, the night was burgeoning focus on environmental economics, which had never been an issue in the study of economics. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we can be very pessimistic, but I think there are also, I think, other yeah. very positive consequences of which it was part of a bigger story, I think. Yeah, I mean, but you also like, you know, if you have a longer kind of long durée yeah. view, you could argue that, that, uh, in fact, you know, interdependence is big in the oh, 1890s, sure. 1910s. Uh, you know, that you've got more, even more radical kind of global imaginaries earlier in the 20th century. And that difference in this, in this period is it's a kind of a remaking of it. So it's, it's kind of reinvention at each moment. And in this period, it gets reinvented around um, a particular idea of globalized, of the globalized economy that is. Um, about the multi, the arrival of the multinational, okay. right? And in fact, the ICC by this time represents multinationals. That's who they. That's who they represent. The multi, the multinational business is the the new phenomenon. And a lot of the world modelling that goes on um, after limits of growth, you know, is about modelling these multinationals, how they, how, where money goes, right? Nobody can work out. Where, where money goes once you have multinationals and you've got deregulation of economies, et cetera, and banks. And, and that's, the new, that's the new kind of interdependence. And that's the shift from the language of planetary to the language of globalization yeah. Yeah. as about money and multinationals. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and other notions of interdependence actually disappear. So not disappear, but like become, there's less emphasis on them, I think. Huh. Hmm. So I mean that's more that's a more negative view of what happened. Yeah. Sorry. Ah, no. oh, it's so depressing, yes. isn't it? Merhawi, anyway, are you getting yes, ready yes. for a question? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Melinda. Uh, Very interesting uh, presentation. Uh, how can we reconcile? Environmental issues, especially on the developing country. For example, there are many African countries whose economies uh, based on exporting oil and other natural resources. So, for them, uh, if you talk about environment, which means 
they are talk about their economy, about their economic growth. They cannot survive without exporting that commodity. So how can we reconcile in the developing countries, especially in African countries, whose economy is based on exporting natural sources, especially uh, oil? Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is why these are questions that I mean, you can think about them locally or globally. And if you do globally, and this is one of the arguments, isn't it, about um, disadvantaging the global south? I mean, you could look, Australia presents itself as the same, right? That it needs to export natural resources, coal mainly, um, and that it shouldn't stop doing that because that's the income for the country, even that's a wealthy country, but, you know, uh, but it, it is then in the same way, you know, we might argue, and again, Iris might have a better view of this or Tony, but you could argue that um, we need to think in the same way as one thinks domestically or nationally in terms of, you know, what happens when you displace certain industries that you have to think about how to, you know, transition, right? So the question is whose responsibility is that transitioning? The responsibility of the developing country or globally, of you know, investing in um, alternative kinds of industries, if you like, or, or other kinds of you know, economic um, uh, uh, basis for economy, economic uh, development or growth within those, um, in, in the kinds of countries you're talking about. But actually, you know, if you read, um, so the, one of the issues might be too that complicates the picture. If you read Thomas Piketty, who's you know, French economist thinking about inequality in the world, he might argue that in some of these contexts that that, that kind of economy that's built on, that, on the natural resources, and that comes out of the same period, the 1970s, right? And this is a really interesting juxtaposition. There's the Human Environment Conference. And a few years later, there's the new international economic order, which is really about the inequality between the global north and the south and how one changes that. And some of it is about how um, giving economic sovereignty to like African countries uh, over their natural resources where imperial you know, businesses from the um, leftover from the imperial context still have control. So giving natural resources back to domestic sovereignty is really important. But actually Piketty talks about how in many of these cases, of course, that income isn't actually then for the broader population. There's a lot of you know, um, corruption going on that undermines actually, you know, if you think of Nigeria, right? So where's all the wealth going from the export of, of, um, of oil in that country? Um, you know, who does it benefit? So maybe the system that um, is, you know, there's, a, there's a way in which one thinks about um, uh, trade-offs, but also that at a global level, we need to, everybody needs to be invested in what happens in everywhere else. The pandemic is a good example because there's a recognition, right? You can't have vaccine nationalism. It can't just be about the vaccine you produce in your own country. If you're rich and you can buy all the vaccines, it's not going to help you if a poor country doesn't have vaccine because you, you're, not, you're always somehow tied up and entangled in the fate of the other and you won't be able to resume normality while there's still disease around. And I think that's also true in the context of environmental challenges, right? That we have to think globally, which means also thinking about how everybody has a vested interest in 
uh, thinking about the economies of, of other countries in some way. But you know how that works out is another question. But. Tony, would you want to, you're the development person. <laughs> Do you want to say something about that? That's off the fly there. Playing up. Okay. Sorry, my microphone was playing up. So I'm not really the development person, but oh, I'm the globalization not. person. Globalization. Iris, Iris is development, but. Um, but she's an historian. Yeah. Oh, yes. but, I mean, if you no, I, are you provoking I, me into saying something here? Um, yeah. No, I, I do think really that we need a totally different idea of development in the first place. And that's both in the south and the north. Yeah. And um, sometimes I say this, but it's it's hard to say this when you are from the north. But I I, I think it's um, you know it's it's just. The development idea that we have of um, of high income, high production, high consumption economies that are based on fossil fuels um, is just not, it, it, it's impossible. It's physically impossible as a goal for everybody in, in the world. And that's why I think as, as a development, Tony, I think, may I turn you off? You're making strange noises. I think it's Isaac Obama. Oh, is someone else is who? Yeah, Pagoma. You can uh, turn me off me. if you want. Oh, Ignatius? But, uh, Ignatius, can I turn you off? He had his hand up before. Oh, okay. Ignatius, sorry, this is just for, for a minute. Um, I forget what I was saying now. Anyway, since, and since this is... Yeah, and, and things, uh, since this is just doesn't make sense as a goal for everybody, I think we should change it. We should think about what makes sense. But this is, uh, this is a large topic and probably one for another evening. But um, no, there, there are also, this is also something that began in the 1970s where the limits to growth is one of these studies that comes out, but there are others, you know, that led to what we today call the, the degrowth movement. And there are some of those that, that also took place in the States, others in France. Um, and there's a whole different strand that goes parallel to that. Ignatius, you are making noises. Uh, maybe instead of shutting you off, I should invite you to say something. No, you're shutting yourself off now. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I want to. Okay, go ahead. Hello. Yeah, we can hear you. Uh, thank, uh, first, I want to thank Professor Atlanta for the wonderful uh, presentation. Uh, I also want to say, uh, Professor, I do agree with you that maybe uh, it is time that uh, it's high time we had a new system of development, both in the global north and the global south. Uh, but however, my question is that uh, to Professor Glenda, uh, how much is greed and capitalism, as well as the culture of consumerism, a threat to the environment, as opposed to just uh, the population of people in the global south? 
My other question is that, are there any measures in place to ensure that leaders from wealthy countries, powerful leaders, uh, they don't place uh, the burden of sacrifice uh, in terms of uh, sacrificing um, things like, uh, as the other speaker have mentioned, uh, mentioned that now they, uh, some countries might have to, in developing countries, uh, fossil fuels for the developed are not the countries that uh, will have to shoulder the burden of protecting the environment, that the, the, the poor countries will not be forced to be the one who, the ones who will shoulder the burden of protecting the environment. While, whilst Okay, we can't hear you anymore now, but I, I, I maybe the question became clear, at least to some extent. Yeah, I mean, the, the second question, you know, the answer to that is, you know, the kind of global fund that exists, isn't there? So where the richer countries yep. are meant to contribute to um, exactly that, uh, you know, predicament uh, by paying for their, paying, you know, uh, for, as, as a way of, um, you know, indicating the inequity in the in the, the the solutions that are available, but I don't know that every country pays very much or takes it seriously. In terms of corruption, I have to tell you that Maurice Strong, in the end, ended up by the 1990s. Um, he was uh, he actually ended up in China. Oh, yeah, my, my, my network went back. So uh, that was my question. How do we ensure that this uh, consensus and there's a uh, fairness in terms of uh, protecting the, 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 the environment that everyone will, uh, that leaders, countries will, will, will be fair in yeah. how they contribute to, to, the, to this without destroying other economies and societies from developing. I think those are exactly the debates that go on in the UN. So while we have these multilateral organizations, those are the discussions that do take place and they try to come up with some answers for that. So the good thing is that those that is actually an agenda that's there. Whether or not it's lived up to and people take the obligation seriously is another question. So, you know, this is the value of multilateral institutions. You can have that discussion, you can force that discussion. So it's a good question. So what I wanted to tell you about corruption was that Maurice Strong in the 1990s was uh, involved in scandals where he was taking money from, you know, food for oil sort of programs and things. And in the end, he ended up in China and sort of some self-imposed exile. He's dead now, so you won't see him in Shanghai. I don't know where he ended up in China. But um, so he was, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> bit depressing isn't it so the corruption that went on in that kind of un world as well is a bit, mm, not a good sign so we all have to take our responsibilities seriously and live ethically yeah is that where he ended up in china i didn't know that i mean he was yeah. a, an, well, an immensely paper page i mean if you google it you could probably find out where he ended up I in Beijing, as far as I know, he was, was living there, yeah. 
But see, I mean, he was influential in the in the Brundtland Commission as well, and he actually headed the uh, 1992, well, the Rio conference as well. So he's one of the, he headed UNEP well, you know all this. How and why is really interesting, isn't it? Like why people thought he had to be the one to run these things? He was good at it. I mean, he was, I forget the name, there was some Swiss guy who was actually originally meant to organize the uh, the Stockholm conference. I keep forgetting his name. And he just didn't get anywhere. And um, I mean, that, that's the impression I get that he, 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 there was something very diplomatic about him. He did get people to talk to each other. Yeah. Well, okay. We have maybe time for one more question. It has turned out a somewhat somber evening because the, the, the topic is a little depressing. Anybody <laughs> has something um, uplifting to add to this topic? We should all go on climate strike tomorrow. Well, you know, there's a new US administration in that's forcing governments to take this seriously. That's good. That's good. So, that's good. China's taking it seriously. And I think the discourse uh, is important. There are a lot of um, initiatives that are going on mm -hmm. um, in many places and many, in many ways. So something that I sent around, what was that, two days ago or so, was something by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, um, which specializes on circular economies. And it's something that fascinates me. I haven't done any research into the, the history of that foundation very much, but it seems to be, as far as I know, basically one person this Ellen which MacArthur, which Ellen MacArthur Foundation. I can I can send you the link, yeah. and just one person who was who who decided well this is an important topic and um, they cooperate also with businesses and with um, institutions and universities. And to me, this is one example of you know the the idea we can't do anything is really not true. Is that it's just a question of determination and and will, and it's a question of political will on you know high levels, but it's also a question of our will on low levels. And um, maybe this is what I would like to take as as a positive uptake here. Yeah, and yeah. I invite all of you to take a look at the website of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Okay. If there is any other question, otherwise, Glenda, would you like to have final words to leave with us? Well, well I just want to thank everybody. It's so great to meet you all from everywhere. Uh, Mahawi, where are you? I didn't ask you where you are. I'm in Shanghai. Are you in Shanghai? Okay, so some people are in Shanghai. And uh, did we find out where Ignatius is? He's also in Shanghai, I know. He's in Shanghai. Yeah, he's... Uh, you, 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 you are allowed to I'm say this yourself. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just... okay. uh, professor, I'm also in Shanghai. Yeah. Ignatius is in Shanghai, China. Okay. Well, xie xie ni, niman. Xie xie ni ma. And one an, because here it's like nearly 10 p.m. And... Um, See you in Shanghai, I hope. 
Okay. That would be wonderful, right? Well, or if you're Lawrence, come and visit me when I'm back there. So great mm. to see you all. Well, thank you very much. Those of you who aren't in Shanghai, I hope you get back very soon. And, and lucky, how lucky you are to have Professor Borrowy. So. Oh, wow. Okay, I'll thank you. Florence. So I'll see you in Florence. So a bit of Italian to say goodbye to you. Vediamo in Italia. Okay, a presto. Yeah. And so, I look forward to meeting you when I'm in Florence and hope you will be yeah, in Florence absolutely. then. Okay. All right. Thank you, everyone. Good evening. Thank